Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner, your host this morning, and you join us on a bright day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost today, I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Burton. Michael is the director of the Armagh Observatory and Planetarium in Northern Ireland. It is the longest running planetarium in the British Isles, having opened in 1968 and celebrated its 50th anniversary two years ago in 2018. Uh, Michael, very warm welcome to you this morning and thank you ever so much for joining us. Ah, thank you and uh, good to be there. It's a real pleasure having you um, on the airwaves with us, uh, Michael, for sure. Um, normally, we would dive straight in with the uh, the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree that it's posed one of the greatest challenges for this generation of leaders, be that within business, within organisations or within governments. But how has it affected you and your operations over in Armagh? Yes, it certainly has. It's, it's, it's a challenge for society everywhere, but today. And uh, talking about specifically how it affected in Amman, the observatory and planetarium, I need to give a little bit of background. We have the observatory, it, it actually goes back to 1790. It's the longest running uh, astronomical observatory uh, in the whole of these islands that's been doing research. And we have a planetarium. Uh, and so we're associated with doing research and we're doing education and outreach. And these are very different, uh, very different, different things. And they take very different, different challenges and different, uh, different needs. So how do we keep ourselves going? Well, um, our researchers, um, are, are, I mean, they're quite used to, to, uh, to be working remotely. So our, our research side of our activity, um, has been able to, to function essentially by people working at home. But but a uh, planetarium is essentially a public space. It's a place that visitors come to, and of course we've had to close that down. And um, and and so how do you keep uh, how do you keep an education team an education team of eight people uh, active and occupied? And essentially we've reinvented ourselves. That's that's what come on. We found a way of of essentially reskilling um, our education team and taking on to, to to learn how to basically provide. Uh, uh, all sorts of uh, public uh, uh, public education. So we've been uh, producing interviews and talks and videos and science experiments, and we've been uploading these uh, onto um, onto essentially our social media channels. And so we've been trying to continue to engage with our audiences, essentially completely um, by virtually. We've had to sort of retool ourselves from place where people come to see us for us to try and sort of go out to them, go out to their living rooms and try and, and, and keep audiences engaged. So it's really required people in finding and, and teaching themselves new skills because, of course, our teams have not, uh, not, 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 um, they weren't trained in that. They weren't trained in talking to people when they, when they come mm. and see us. So it is, yes, it's a very unusual time. I'm, I'm happy to say that we have, um, we have actually succeeded very well in, in, in doing this. And, um, I can imagine that it's a little bit of a challenge, isn't it, having to adjust to sort of taking that immersive experience and then essentially projecting it from a distance, leadership from a distance, if you'd like to call it that. Um, but having had to do that in uh, by means of adapting to this new reality, as it were, is there anything that you would say that you've learned in your leadership capacity about yourself, your determination, and even that of the people working with you as well? Well, we've certainly learned about the importance of, of continuing to communicate and talk with each other. Um, 
And that has, of course, it's all, it's, it's all gone into to virtual meetings, Zoom meetings, Teams meetings, but the need to, to uh, essentially regularly schedule in time for everyone to engage each other, whether it's as an organization as a whole or in your own little groups where you're, where you're working on projects, because it's so easy to sort of drift away and, uh, and, and if you don't have that, 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 that daily contact, which is what the office, office provides. We were fortunate enough that we'd up, actually upgraded our IT system so that we were able to switch into uh, on, uh, online working almost immediately. If it had been and actually even a few months earlier, our, our own IT systems and, and the knowledge of our staff for using, using these systems probably would not have been there. But we had actually upgraded uh, and, uh, and we were familiar with how to use the conferencing facilities across the organization, even if we hadn't actually many of us used it more than once or twice. So it's, it's, it's the importance of essentially continual communications, continual ensuring that everyone is involved and, and takes part in, in their little team groups uh, all the time during the week. If, if we'd been, uh, if, if, if we'd let things uh, sort of people work out their own, let work out their own, uh, um, how should I say, we'll work out their own agenda, things could have, could have got uh, lost quite quickly, but we, we were able to switch into this mode from the start and people got used to working from home uh, early on. Mm. And um, can you foresee any sort of features of the lockdown period? So this way that you've been working over the last few months, can you see any of that continuing into the future, even at the time when COVID-19 is no longer an issue and your sort of in-house operations are back in vogue? Well, yes, we can. I mean, we've all now learned a new way of working or operating. There are, there are gains to be had. Um, I mean, when it comes down to simply face-to-face meetings, how often do you actually need a face-to-face meeting? Uh, I was uh, regularly, for instance, uh, commuting into Belfast uh, from, from, from the office, and that, and that takes a significant, it takes a good part of your day to do that. Many of these meetings, you don't actually need to do that. You can work perfectly well remotely. You can bring more people in. So certainly, we'll never, we're never going to go back to the old, the old way of, of working. But I think perhaps more importantly, we've actually learned new skills, new ways of engagement, new ways of communicating. And any programs we run into the future, part of this virtual this online engagement will be a part of it. Because you know that when you're, when you're presenting something, you're going to be presenting it in multiple ways. You're going to be presenting it to your audiences who are there with you. And you're going to be presenting it to those people who are going to be listening and watching online. And I think that that is going to become um, Mm. central to anything we do in the future. And if we sort of shift focus ever so slightly now to address leadership in a more broad sense, Michael, um, I always like to ask the question to guests that appear on the programme. What does that word leader actually mean to you? What is a leader's role, do you think? Well, the leader's role, uh, it, it will depend on what the organization is and what the organization does. In the, in the case of, uh, of an organization like um, our Bilty Planetarium, we are a, a science, research, and education organization. And my role is, is about uh, providing a vision for what we should be doing, how we should be communicating, what kinds of things we should, should be doing, what are the important the messages that we should be getting out there, and then trying to steer the organization uh, in, in, in that direction. And, uh, and that's and we have been revisiting um, what we think our organisation should do during the lockdown because, of course, we all had plans for activities for, for, this, for this year which have had to be put on hold. And so we've been asking ourselves, well, what is it we really want to do? What can we do uh, in the time ahead, given the fact that we, we clearly aren't going to be going back to, 
to uh, to, the, to the way it was back in sort of January and February this year. Mm. It certainly reminded us, hasn't it, about how times of adversity do galvanise and really bring us together because people have really stood up and been counted during this time and so many businesses and organisations are the world over. But also it's reminded us of the value of learning and hindsight, hasn't it? We can look back at certain things and think, well, with the benefit of hindsight, this could have been done differently we could have maybe done this a little bit better. But when you're sort of acting on your feet, being reactive, doing what you think is right at the time, and then you understand a little bit later on that you maybe made one or two mistakes along the way, you can just embrace that as a learning curve and not implement a blame culture, can you? Because leadership as well, I think fundamentally is all about learning, isn't it? Yes, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, we had to adapt on the run just as, as everyone else did. And we didn't actually have a plan when we started if we we started from scratch about what we're going to do in these six months, it might have been very different. And to tell the truth, it mightn't have been as good because when you're adapting and learning on the run, you are constantly changing and new ideas. And and nothing is wrong at that point because we, we're, we're all we're all learning from that. So everyone uh, everyone came out with new ideas, new ways of working, and ultimately these these things blended together. I mean, we have come out with with realizing and sort of new visions for the organisation about the importance of communicating science to the public. I mean, one thing that's been very clear over the whole COVID uh, pandemic is the importance of understanding science for for managing managing essentially the public health situation. Now, we don't deal with public health in the observatory and planetarium, but we deal with with essentially um, Earth's place uh, in in the cosmos, understanding that the Earth is space. And and of course, there are other great challenges out there after we deal mm. with with COVID. There's going to be things like understanding how what's happening to planet Earth itself. And so we're, we're realizing the importance of a planetarium, a place where we can communicate and tell people and explain to people what's happening to Earth, what might happen to Earth if, if, uh, if, if we don't do the right things. So we indeed are rethinking our own mission as mm. a result of all this. And certainly while the emphasis is on COVID-19 at the moment, and understandably so, what do you think is that big challenge looming on the horizon that it, nobody is talking about at the moment? Well, yes. I mean, the, the really the big challenge beyond this is indeed what's, I mean, in a nutshell, what's happening to planet Earth with, with essentially, I mean, global warming is one way of describing it, but it's much more than just just um, the effects of, 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 of um, human population on the climate itself. It's, it's everything we're doing to the environment, understanding planet Earth, understanding how we can manage and look after planet Earth for future generations. And science is going to be so important for that. So communicating how science can, can help us understand it, Science doesn't have black and white answers. It's, it's often many shades of grey, but indeed um, using science to help uh, decide the best way forward. And that's what's happening at the moment with, with, with controlling COVID-19. We're all seeing there's no you know, right or wrong answers. There's, there's ways of learning. People are working on the run. They're making the best choices they can given the facts around them. And that's going to apply to, to whatever we do in the future, whether it's managing planet Earth or dealing with the health health crisis that we're in at the moment. Mm. Now, uh, Michael, if you were to actually channel some of your experiences in your leadership role and maybe offer some advice to those younger generations of people who may be tuning into this that are maybe considering starting their own businesses or are maybe stepping into a leadership role within an established organisation or firm for the first time, what advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success? Ah, that's a that's a big question. I mean, I I don't know if anyone actually deliberately steps into a leadership role. One finds one's uh, one as one goes through one's one's career and and uh, and and starts uh, trying to 
to, to follow one's ambitions, uh, that you do need to take on responsibilities around you. You can't just be working for yourself. You are looking after more uh, more people and guiding them on. And essentially, a leadership role is indeed about uh, understanding the needs of, of the group of people or organization uh, that you're working with, uh, bringing them all on, as well as trying to guide them uh, in, in the direction that you think the organization uh, should be going uh, taking their advice uh, when that's needed, sometimes having to, to give out advice. It, it's a multi, multi-faceted, multi-pronged approach, but it, but it is about, um, I think, um, uh, importantly, having a, a vision and, uh, and being able to share that vision and bring people along and understand uh, the importance of, of, of essentially of all working and contributing uh, towards that. Mm. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed for anybody who may be tuning um, into this today. Um, unfortunately, Michael, our time on the programme is beginning to draw to its close. But just before we do wrap things up this morning, I would like to talk about the future because we all know that we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new way of working and living, the new normal as it's being built, of course. Um, but over the next 12 months, what is it that you're hoping for the Armar Observatory and Planetarium to really achieve? And indeed, where do you see see the organization being this time next year? And that's a very big and open question given the circumstances. Now, look, my most immediate one is simply when can we actually open to the public again? I mean, I have a planetarium, which is we've been undergoing significant investment in it over the last uh, few months. We've started this investment before the lockdown and it all went into spaces. It all went, got on hold, but we want to open up again. But obviously, we can't do that at the moment. We are working out how we can do so, what kind of numbers we could actually take in. But that's going to be very challenging for us. We don't even know if, if people are, are really going to want to come into uh, indoor spaces uh, in, in any, any numbers anyway. So our um, most immediate one is, is how we can, we can open up to the public. But we also know we need to provide more material for virtual and online. So we're actually trying to develop what's called a virtual classroom at the moment, how we can provide education for schools who aren't going to be able to visit us in the planetarium, we're going to have to go to visit them. So we're now turning the skills that we've learned during the, the pandemic uh, into uh, into developing these tools for a virtual classroom. Sounds like you've got plenty to get stuck into over the course of the year, the next few months, Michael, and I certainly wish you all the luck in the world in making that become a reality. And, you know, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us this morning to share your views with our listeners, I think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next few months and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are coming along and we can reassess then just how far we've come with regards to the pandemic too. Okay, well, thank you, Scott. I'd be happy to be a real pleasure for me as well michael and most importantly until hopefully we do touch base again please do take care and stay safe with everything still happening okay thank you i was speaking on today's program to michael burton director of the omar observatory and planetarium in northern ireland and i would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners today do please continue to look after yourselves and think of others be sensible it makes a real real difference in saving lives at this time um next up on the program today we'll be handing over to matthew o'neill for his exclusive interview with former education secretary and incumbent leaders council chairman lord blunkett um lord blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite 
despite being blind from birth, having held various senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet, and also served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett, and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common 
a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. Including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this are you broadly supportive of their measures well it may surprise people to hear that that i have been very supportive of course there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK, we, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. 
Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
and mm. those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt 
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.